Uh, right now our bikes are snowed in, so we're not going to be moving them. Hopefully we'll ride uh, this weekend or next weekend because Elle and I were trying to get like one motorcycle ride in per month. And in Canada, if you can do that, that's actually pretty good. So um, hopefully we'll have a, a dry day where we can just go around the block or something. And then the riding season around here begins, you know, April, March, April. And that was the voice of Jeremy Craker, motorcycle traveler and author. And this is the Motorcycle Man Podcast, episode 273. And I am Ted, your host. Welcome to the show. In this segment of Chapters, we have author and motorcycle traveler Jeremy Craker, and he joins us to give us a preview of Chapter 6 from his book, Motorcycle Therapy, a Canadian adventure through Central America. The Motorcycle Men Podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. They're offering high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. To learn more, you go to scorpionusa.com and Shinko Tires. Shinko has a tire to suit your needs and your riding style without breaking your bank account. So you want to go on over to Shinko Tire USA and you tell them that the Motorcycle Men Podcast sent you. And you can improve your comfort and ability to stay in the saddle longer with a cushion from Wild-Ass Seats. So if you're tired of those painful pressure points and fatigue, go to wild-ass.com and get your cushion today. Make sure you tell them that the Motorcycle Men sent you. And for the best in casual riding gear for men and women, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear. I wear Tobacco Motorwear riding jeans and the California riding shirt and the Roper gloves. You want to get this gear. This is the best riding gear and most comfortable riding gear you will ever own. So visit them at TobaccoMotorWear.com, and our listeners get 10% off your order when you use that coupon code MOTOMEN. Your safety is worth it, and you won't regret it. Uclear Digital, that's right. Uclear Helmet Communication Systems are based on a direct feedback from riders, dealers, and industry experts to be the most advanced, easiest to use, most durable, most portable, best-sounding, and longest-lasting and weatherproof comm systems ever. It's cutting-edge tech is made simple to use while being rugged enough to withstand any weather conditions. Enhance your rides with Uclear's Dynamesh-compatible intercom, powerful music, and crystal-clear phone calls on any road, any trail, and on any helmet. This is the most portable communication system you will ever own. From helmet to helmet, you can use this system on it. To learn more, you go to uclearedigital.com and you tell them that the Motorcycle Men podcast sent you. I use them. I love them. Time now for my conversation with Jeremy Craker on this episode of Chapters. Hello and welcome, Jeremy. Welcome back to the podcast, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulous. Thanks for having me back. I'm so glad. It's been a long time since you've been on the show. Yeah, it must have been. Hey, like four years ago, something at like least, that. Maybe even at more. least four years ago. I could, I could take the time and find out right now, but I'm not going to. It's been a while. How you been? 
Uh, well, that's a bit of a loaded question. Uh, ultimately, my life has been trending in a positive direction. So that's let's just thing. say that I've been uh, doing great and, uh, and I feel really good. I'm happy to be on the show. Excellent. That's good. And I know you guys, you and Ellie just got back from a huge trip. And we'll have you, uh, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast to tell us all about that. That's for sure. And we'd be happy to join you again anytime. Good. All right. So for those who are not familiar with who you are, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your motorcycle self? Well, my name is Jeremy Craker. Uh, I'm a motorcycle traveler and I'm a writer. Uh, I've written two books, including Motorcycle Therapy, which we're going to talk about today and Through Dust and Darkness. And I'm the editor and publisher of two motorcycle anthologies as well. Uh, as far as my motorcycle self goes, I would say that I have been a lifelong motorcyclist, starting off on little dirt bikes when I was probably 12 or 13 years old in Saskatchewan, uh, Canada. And as soon as I was 16, I started riding motorcycles on the street, and I haven't stopped. And I've uh, ridden through probably... 35 countries with my motorcycle at least i kind of stopped counting to be honest but in the mid-30s something like that wow wow many people wish they could have say the same thing so now your book motorcycle therapy a canadian adventure in central america is a book you did on a motorcycle trip you took so why don't you uh, tell us how that journey came about Oh, the trip that began, yeah, it was a, a strange beginning to a motorcycle journey. I had been in a fairly significant relationship. I was a young man and madly in love, or so I thought. Uh, maybe I didn't quite understand the concept at the time, but... <laughs> we never uh, do. Yeah, at any rate, uh, the relationship ended prematurely, according to how I thought it should go, and I was heartbroken. And... Coincidentally, uh, an old friend of mine had also been recently let go by his girlfriend. So the two of us hatched this harebrained brain scheme to just get on our motorcycles and basically ride away from all of the, the heartache and the trouble. It was basically a journey of self-pity, <laughs> um, but it turned into a fantastic adventure and one of self-discovery as well. Now, as far as it goes for planning this, did you spend a lot of time planning this trip? Absolutely not. I spent so little time planning this trip. We basically decided that we were going to take this trip on a whim. And then four months later, plus or minus, we had both purchased motorcycles and we had gotten our stuff together and we had quit our jobs and we had just gone south. And that was really the only uh, planning that we had done as far as route finding was that we wanted to ride south. And we were going to ride for as long as we could and as long as our money held out, which turned out to be about four months. <laughs> wow. That's, what, what kind of bike did you get? I was on a Kawasaki KLR 650, uh, 2001, I believe the year was. Right. And when I told my friend who was going to join me on this adventure which bike I had, he went out and found himself the identical make and model and year reasoning that this way we would only have to carry you know half the amount of parts so <laughs> in theory <laughs> yeah in theory now as far as it goes for the route did you plan a specific route to go uh, on this no we were in a bit of a rush because we were not only fleeing heartache but we were fleeing a canadian winter so oh. 
You know, to be honest, it's a long time since I've looked at the book, so I'd have to go back and check the exact date, but it was end of October, I believe, that Trevor and I mm -hmm. set out from um, Manitoba, which is in the middle of Canada. So imagine North Dakota, that kind of region, just the prairies, um, and it was m middle or late October, and the snow was beginning to threaten up in, in our neck of the woods, so... The only thing that we had planned was to ride as many miles as we could south as fast as we possibly could in order to get out of the cold and into some good, sweet weather. Wow. How many miles was the, the total trip? Do you recall? I never, again, I never really looked, uh, kept a, an accurate journal. I would say something around 15,000 kilometers, and you'll have to excuse me if I can't do that conversion right off my That's head. That's okay. It's something around, let's say, 9,000 miles, maybe. Wow. There's probably somebody right now screaming at their computer or their phone as they're listening to this podcast saying, that math is not accurate, but <laughs> somewhere around nine, ten thousand 10,000 miles, let's say. So here you are, you just bought a bike, and not much planning. I have to imagine that there were some challenges along the way. Well, there were many challenges along the way. You know, I said earlier on at the top of the show that I was a lifelong motorcyclist, and that is true. I started when I was 13, and I had a motorcycle when I was 16 for the street, and I rode and rode and rode. But then there was a dark period of my life that I don't like to talk about where I didn't have a motorcycle, and that was a period of about, I don't, I don't know, I think maybe eight years or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so this KLR that I bought was my first foray back into motorcycling. So not only did we not do a whole lot of planning as far as the route goes, we also didn't have a whole lot of experience as far as motorcycle riders go on the street. Yeah. Trevor and I had both grown up riding dirt bikes all over the prairies, but that doesn't really prepare you for, you know, lane filtering in California or whatever. Wow. Now, was there any specific part of the trip that stands out in your mind as probably the worst part of the trip? Uh, sorry, Ted, you broke up there uh, again. Maybe it's my internet. You said, am, "Are you looking for the worst?" Yeah, was there any was there any trip? part of that trip that was uh, was the worst part of the trip for you? Oh yeah, uh, I, I write about it in the book, and I'm pretty. Um, I, I like to think that I'm pretty honest and open with my emotions and with my feelings and with my thoughts. And Trevor and I had a lot of interpersonal conflict on that trip. And I write about it in the book. It's uh, it, it was not a it was not an easy partnership. Trevor and I hadn't seen each other for about ten years or something like this. Um, I think we met in 1995 and we did the trip in 2003. So not quite ten years had passed be between um, seeing each other, and we weren't that well suited uh, for traveling these long miles together, like we thought we might have been. And in the book, I point a lot of blame. Um, I point the blame at my girlfriend who dumped me, and I point the blame at Trevor for a little bit because of this deficiency or that. And uh, as the book progresses, I think the reader will find, or the listener will find, that my, my personal character, the character of Jeremy, uh, develops a little bit and gets a little bit more self-aware. Right. And towards the end of the book, there's a, a revelation, a realization rather, that, you know what, if all of these people uh, are having a conflict with me and I with them, the only common denominator in this equation <laughs> is me. So 
I hope readers and listeners will see that, yes, I'm poking at Trevor a little bit in the book, but ultimately uh, it was a learning experience for myself. And um, turns out, spoiler alert, I'm not an easy person to travel with. <laughs> no, you? Yeah. No, stop. Yeah, and I, you know, and Elle's not in on this conversation right now, but she is, I'm sure she can hear me from the other room. She's probably nodding her head right now. I can't see her. She's out of the frame. But <laughs> so, so it was a journey of discovery for you then. Absolutely, it was absolutely a journey of discovery. And you know, sometimes the best adventures, I think, are are the ones that are the most on fly and, and spontaneous. Yeah, I'm not saying that if you have a grand um, idea that you shouldn't do the research and prepare. But if you fail in the preparation um, process, that might just make for a better adventure. Oh, well, flying by the seat of your pants is always fun, right? Hmm. <laughs> what was your favorite I mean, part of the trip? Well, th my favorite part of the trip, it, again, it was, that's a more difficult question to answer because the trip ultimately, in spite of the interpersonal conflict between Trevor and I, Ultimately, it was a fantastic adventure and just the feeling of moving and of being free and of being unencumbered by a schedule, except for fleeing the Canadian winter. Uh, that was really the only thing that we had on our agenda was getting south. And that was so liberating. But if I had to pick one experience, it was when Trevor and I got to Panama, which is the farthest point that we went south. We left our motorcycles in Panama City and took uh, a journey deep into the jungles of Panama and m spent a weekend with this um, basically indigenous tribe. They didn't speak Spanish. Uh, we didn't speak their language. They were the, I believe they were called the, the Wonan tribe, and their language sounded like singing. And we, we hitched a ride on kind of a missionary boat, um, this open outboard motor canoe kind of contraption, and... Uh, yeah, we spent a few days in, in the jungle, and that was just absolutely mind-blowing. Wow. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've heard of, you probably, the listener has probably heard of the Darien Gap. Yes. Uh, and how dangerous that, uh, at least how dangerous it was. It's definitely made some improvements recently, but we were in 2003 in the Darien province of of Panama, which and deep into the jungle. So it was a little bit... Um, it was it was off the beaten path, you could say. Yeah, imagine. Now, what was it, was it your intention to make a book out of this trip to start with, or did you do the trip and then go, you know, I should make a book out of that? Yeah, it was the latter. It was not the former. In fact, almost everything that I've ever accomplished has been by accident. <laughs> and also, I'm quite stubborn. And and again, Elle is not in the same room as me. But if she's listening from the other room, she's probably not nodding her head. <laughs> I was writing in my journal every day, and I was writing emails. So this was before you know even blogs were um, prominent. So I was writing emails back to my friends and family, and I put a fair bit of uh, care and attention into them, and my intention was to make them laugh. And apparently I did, because when I got home, a few of my friends and a few of my family members said, oh, Jeremy, that's pretty funny stuff. You should write a book about it. And so I thought, oh, yeah, that, I hadn't thought of that. But that will be easy because I have all the emails. All right. I have to do is cut and paste, slap them together, and 
in theory. Boom. There's <laughs> there's your book. And then yeah. yeah. <laughs> During the writing process and the editing and refining process, I realized how wildly um, delusional that was, that, that thought that I could make a book so easily. Um, and I ended up rewriting and rewriting and rewriting probably 10 times or something like this. Uh, I hired uh, an editor to help me like find the, uh, you know, the thread of story that should run through the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, that's how the book came to be. Wow. How long did it take you to write the book, though? Well, it took me to about two and a half years. Really? Wow. Okay. Now, what made you decide to turn it into an audiobook? That's a great question. In fact, I'm not entirely sure why I decided to make an audiobook. I think I was just looking for another creative outlet. And I had been, I think I had just released my second book through Dust and Darkness. And that's about a trip through the Middle East and North Africa. And I was looking for something else to do, but I didn't want to take on another giant writing project so quickly. So I think the audiobook um, felt like a creative way to revisit an old project and, um, and, and try something new. All right. Well, tell us about the recording process and, more importantly, your decision to narrate the book yourself. Well, the decision to narrate the book myself was pretty, pretty well a no-brainer because I didn't have a whole lot of money to pour into the project. Mm -hmm. And uh, although I'm not an actor or a great orator, uh, I did write the book in my own voice. Right? They say as a writer, you're supposed to find your voice. And who better represents that voice than me? So once I decided to do the narration myself, I went about finding um, a producer for the project. And he brought me into a studio in Calgary, and I did a little bit of fundraising for it as well. So I started a, uh, an Indiegogo funding campaign, I believe, and I raised enough money to cover my costs. And I went into the studio and had a fantastic time, but it is so much work. And like everything else in my writing and creative uh, journey, I would say that I have underestimated how much work is involved in every <laughs> single project that I've ever taken on. How long did it take you from start to finish to create the audiobook? I kind of lost track of that as well. I would go in on the weekends, and this was actually at a period, um, unfortunately, this was a few years ago, when my father was uh, ill in Saskatchewan. And so I was driving from Alberta to Saskatchewan to visit my dad um, in his kind of final days. And then on the way to Saskatchewan, I would stop in. I would do a recording session. I would stay overnight. I would do another recording session. And then I would drive to Saskatchewan and visit my dad. And then on the way back, I would record uh, a little bit here and there as well. So it was not, it was not an undisturbed uh, chunk of time that I was working with. Uh, I, I think it must have taken me probably eight recording sessions, probably something like that. And if you look at the book, it's a very short book. The thing is, uh, as you're reading, your voice gets tired and your enthusiasm level maybe spikes at times and maybe drops and you're looking for consistency. So we took a lot of care and attention to, to get everything right. Uh, that's why it took a little bit longer. So I guess a roundabout way to answer your question, I would say it was maybe two weeks of pretty solid effort. All right. Now, was there a lot of post-production with that? Yes. <laughs> there was a lot of post. I'm laughing because I just have contracted with 
the same recording engineer to do my next audiobook project, which is through Dust and Darkness. And I'm laughing because he told me at the time that he did this. Had he known how much work was involved with an audiobook and the removing lip pops and taking out breaths and pauses and ums, things like that, if he knew how much work it was going to be, he would have doubled his price. <laughs> but, but I'm laughing too because when I contacted him to do Through Dust and Darkness, I think he's kind of forgotten all of that because he said he was going to charge me rough, <laughs> roughly the same amount of money. I'm, I'm hoping that he's, he's charging me the same, even though it's a longer book, because he has grown in his experience and his efficiency. So we'll see how that goes. And we have to hope he does not hear this podcast. Oh, I, ho- I so hope not, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of which, now, so now through Dust and Darkness was another trip you took and, and, and you wrote that but no, now that book was released not much after um, Motorcycle Therapy was it? Motorcycle Therapy the written book came out in 2006 and then Through Dust and Darkness came out by publisher Rocky Mountain Books in 2013 Okay. so seven years uh, but a lot transpired in those seven years Right. so now we're going to get an audio book uh, through Dust and Darkness, when? Well, I'm going into the studio, uh, the same studio that I recorded uh, Motorcycle Therapy, and I'm going in either next weekend or the weekend after that. Um, but this time, I won't be driving back and forth across the Canadian prairies. Uh, I'll have a little bit more focus, I think, and uh, you know, I'll do a better job in preparation. I can't promise when it will be out, but I'm hoping that it will be out by the spring of 2021. Uh, perfect. I look forward to hearing that. Uh, so now, this chapter we're going to hear is uh, chapter six Ooh. and uh, of uh, motorcycle therapy. So why don't you tell our listeners what they're about to hear in this particular chapter? Well, as I understand it, this is the part where Trevor and I are about to enter El Salvador, and we are in... Uh, a little hotel room, and we're arguing or discussing about, you know, what we want to have for dinner. And me, growing up the way that I did, or I don't know if it's just my palate isn't very sophisticated, I am totally happy with the same diet. Just whatever you eat for supper, you could warm it up for breakfast or even eat it cold. And Trevor was hoping for a little bit more variety and nutrition but he would always make the mistake of asking me what I wanted. And the fact is, I didn't care. So the easiest thing for us to cook in our little hotel room was always rice and eggs. And um, I think you're about to hear what goes through my mind when I'm asked what we should have for dinner. (laughs) It's funny that you should say that because I'm the same way. I could care less. Just Put it in front of me and I'll eat it. I don't care if it's what we had for the last six nights in a row. I, I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. just sustenance. That's all. Just to keep me going. I get it. I totally understand. I do appreciate good food and you know, traveling when you're when you're on the road. I enjoy eating at restaurants and trying the local cuisine. But as far as making it myself or collecting the ingredients, I can't be bothered. So I'll I'll be a little bit more adventurous when I uh, am on the road. For example, on this last trip uh, in Peru. I tried kui, which is guinea pig, and uh, things like this. But, yeah, if I'm making my own food, it's just whatever I can shovel into my mouth the easiest. (laughs) All right. Talking about books, uh, tell us about this book, Motorcycle Messengers. 
Motorcycle Messengers, uh, I've got two volumes out now, Motorcycle Messengers and then Motorcycle Messengers 2. It's a collection of short stories from a bunch of different motorcycle travel writers. And I've done a bunch of book promotion in California and British Columbia, and then I've gone over to England, and I've done book promotion there. And I noticed that when I was in England, people were talking about English authors and when I was in California, there was a lot of American authors, and then in Canada, Canadian authors. And I just I started reading some of these people and finding fantastic stories, but there wasn't much, I guess you'd call it cross-pollination. <laughs> so I decided to collect stories from known and unknown writers, put them into an anthology, so it's kind of a sample pack. Sure. Uh, a reader can pick up one of these books, and they can... Discover Lois Price, for example, out of uh, the UK, or Patty Tyson, or um, you know, in the in the States, they can discover. Um, I'm kind of gapping on the names right now, but um, Christopher P. Baker, for example, and uh, Mark Richardson in Canada, and they can go. Oh, I have never heard of this person before, but I love this story. I'm going to check out their books. Yeah, and that's why I collected those anthologies together. Motorcycle Messengers 2 is uh, fairly new, and um, it, it's a fun project. It's a labor of love, and uh, hopefully people will enjoy the stories within. Excellent. Now, your trip that you did down into South America with Ellie, is there going to be mm -hmm. a book about that? <laughs> yeah, that is a great question. Uh, she has been asking me that a lot. Is there going to be a book? I am working up to it. So right now I've been kind of distracting myself with little side projects. For example, recording the audiobook of Through Dust and Darkness. Sure. That will take me some time. And I'm working on some YouTube videos about the most recent trip that I did with Elle. Um, and so I'm kind of distracting myself with more creative projects that are not writing related. But I do have uh, detailed notes on the trip. And I have been writing articles for Canada Moto Guide and for Motorcycle Mojo magazine about the trip. So I have expressed myself creatively about the trip. And I, I think, without committing to anything, Ted, <laughs> I think there may be a book on the horizon. Good. Now, if you do a book and you, then you decide to do an audio book, you mm. got to get Ellie to help you with the audio book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, you know, everything is on the table. We, we will discuss that. She, <laughs> she is definitely worried. Elle is worried about how I will portray her um, because she has read Motorcycle Therapy. And the humor that I tend to find in situations doesn't always flatter myself or my travel partners. Um, and I've got to be a little bit more delicate with L, not because she couldn't take the ribbing, but because I'm living with her now, and it would be foolish for me to have a devil-may-care attitude towards how I depict her. Well, humor is what it is. Yeah. And one must respect humor in all well, forms. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jeremy, I want to thank you very much for giving us this little preview of what we're about to hear with uh, Motorcycle Therapy. And I look forward to having you back on the show again, hopefully soon, and we can talk about your trip with Elle. All right. Yeah, I would love to be back, and uh, I appreciate uh, the, time that, uh, the time that you gave for this. Thank you. Okay. December 2. We set out early for El Salvador 
turning our backs on hazy mountains and riding towards the Pacific Ocean on a flat highway. When we stopped to check our maps near Esquintla, we noticed a plume of smoke rising from a distant peak. We watched the eruption in silence for a few moments before turning east towards the border. Our tremidador, Freddy, suggested we buy a transit permit to Costa Rica to save time and money, a decision we would later regret. The whole afternoon became a blur of lines, forms, computer malfunctions, fees, and intolerable heat. It took us from 11.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. to cross into El Salvador. We raced the setting sun to a seaside town just off the main highway called Acajula. A young man on a bicycle, who wanted nothing in return for his help, led us to a nearly vacant hotel by the ocean. The operators stared at us in utter disbelief for a few moments before they remembered what to do with paying customers. We paid $6 each for our own insect-infested rooms, where we cooked supper. I inherited a cast-iron stomach and appreciation for simple food from my grandpa. I never tire of a repetitive menu, a necessity given that I am a culinary idiot. Whenever Trevor asked what I felt like eating, and I mean every time, I'd nonchalantly say, how about rice and eggs? The predictability of my response began to make Trevor visibly upset, forcing me to mix it up a bit. Sometimes, when asked what I wanted for supper, I'd furrow my brow and look down. It appeared to Trevor as if I was thinking of food ideas, but in my mind, I was just dancing around the room, clapping my hands and chanting, Rice and eggs! Rice and eggs! Rice and eggs! I could feel the tension growing in the room as Trevor waited for me to speak. I imagined him thinking, Don't say rice and eggs. Don't say rice and eggs. Don't say rice and eggs. When I could bear the silence no longer, I'd look up as though I'd just had an idea and say, How about... Pause for dramatic effect. Rice and eggs. The problem was one of perspective. Trevor looked at his plate and saw bland, unimaginative food barely containing the basic ingredients to sustain life. I looked at my plate and saw a veritable cornucopia of flavor and blessed nutrients. Also, it was cheap and easy to make on our little gasoline camping stove. No doubt the whole cooking thing annoyed Trevor as much as his signalite annoyed me, but at least monotonous dinners wouldn't cause a horrible traffic accident. Once again... Trevor asked what I wanted for supper. I can't imagine why. I furrowed my brow and looked down as if in thought. After a fantastic supper of rice and eggs, we relaxed on the patio and enjoyed several wonderfully cold malt beverages under a sparkling night sky. The warm breeze and rhythmic sound of the ocean fostered a melancholy mood. I became homesick and lonely, suddenly daunted by the journey ahead. I looked over at Trevor, scribbling thoughtfully in his journal at the next table. Hey, Trev, I interrupted. Trevor looked up and grabbed his beer. Do you think we'll actually make it to Panama, I said? Of course, why wouldn't we? Trevor took a swig and looked out at the ocean before turning back to his journal. December 3 A warm wind snapped at my nylon jacket as we rode along El Salvador's majestic coastal highway. It was another perfect moment. I could see Trevor riding in front of me silhouetted against the glistening Pacific, when suddenly something eclipsed the sun. Slowly, deliberately, I turned my gaze to check my rearview mirror and gasped at what I saw. The frame of my mirror contained nothing but one enormous headlight of a transport truck that was riding my tail and closing the distance.
That guy's so close I can nearly touch his bumper, I thought, and, for reasons I can't explain, my body considered that a command. I twisted around to face the truck, keeping my right hand steady on the throttle to maintain our delicate equilibrium. Resting my torso on the backpack strapped to my rear seat and reaching as far back as I could with my left arm, I extended my index finger. I could not touch the bumper, so, and this I really can't explain, I gently rolled back the throttle. The look of bewilderment and horror on the driver's face as he slammed on his brakes was very entertaining, and I instantly had plenty of room. It took us one long, hot day to cover 300 kilometers and cross the entire country of El Salvador. Trevor and I rolled into La Union and rented two rooms in a cheap hotel. After some bike maintenance, we went for a walk in search of food. The sun set while we ate, and the city suffered a massive power failure. On the way back, we practically had to grope our way in the direction of the hotel. When the lights began blinking on at random locations in the city, we found ourselves in a wet street market that smelled of rotten meat. I couldn't believe my eyes. I cast a quick glance at Trevor to recalibrate my vision and look back at the girl. I hadn't imagined her. She stood beneath the only functioning streetlight in an otherwise darkened alley as though the light, inspired by her beauty, had decided to illuminate her. Her red, strapless gown shimmered on her slender form as she brushed a wisp of silky black hair from her face with the back of a delicate hand. With the other hand, she held a lucky ice cream cone. She gently carved shallow grooves in the ice cream with the very tip of her tongue, occasionally catching a runaway drip with a deadly kiss before it could touch the soft skin of her fingers. Her tiara broke the light into a thousand pieces, scattering colorful glints to even the darkest corners of the filthy alley. A drunken man urinated on the sidewalk only a few meters from her, possibly pissing the Spanish word for juxtaposition on the pavement. She took no notice, and we kept walking. We arrived at the hotel to discover that it sat across the street from the world's loudest outdoor disco. Of course, the obese landlady who sat smothering an unseen chair had failed to mention the disco, but readily admitted prior knowledge when asked how long the music would disturb our sleep. Total noche! All night, she cackled while fanning herself with a magazine. It's difficult to overstate the volume of the bass-thumping techno music that blasted across the street. Windows rattled, the garbage can shook, and the pencils on my nightstand hopped around like Mexican jumping beans. I didn't sleep, exactly. Rather, my mind retreated somewhere deep inside my head and manually shut down my senses, inducing a sort of coma. December 4. Once more suffering from food poisoning, Trevor decided to visit a hospital. I'd suggested he take the broad-range antibiotics we'd brought from home, but he wanted to see a doctor. When he came back, he said the whole hospital visit had been a waste of time. Then he took his broad-range antibiotics. We got a late start because of the delay and arrived at the El Salvador border with Honduras at one in the afternoon. We idled through a sea of laminated badges, finally choosing a tremidador with golden eye teeth, one bearing the inscription J and the other T. Assuredly, we would glide through the border with JT's help, and he snapped his fingers to prove it. Of course, JT had no way of knowing that our transit permits had expired and that we had unwittingly overstayed our legal welcome in El Salvador by a whole day. Trevor and I didn't know that either, 
Consequently, we each needed to pay $55 U.S. just to leave the country. With little help from JT, we stood in long lines and argued with many people about the fine. After we had spent about four hours sweating in a gravel parking lot, a pair of unshaven men dressed in leather and denim thumped up to the border on an old Russian motorcycle. They spoke no Spanish. They spoke no English. They only spoke Russian. They showed us a map of their travels, which covered most of the globe, and then they roared on to Honduras, leaving Trevor and me in the dusty parking lot. In frustration, we barged into the actual customs office to talk to someone in charge. Don't try that at the Canada-U.S. border, by the way. We implied that we had overstayed our permit because of Trevor's illness. Trevor produced a crumpled hospital receipt for the officer's review. The officer sat at his desk and examined the receipt. When did you visit the hospital, he asked. The receipt had no date on it. This morning, Trevor replied. Not yesterday, said the official. He glanced at the mountain of paperwork we had accumulated in the past four hours. No, I was in the hospital this morning. That's too bad. If you were in the hospital yesterday, that would change everything. You could just go. We said nothing. Now, he continued, when did you go to the hospital? Right, I was in the hospital yesterday, said Trevor. The officer smiled and quickly wrote yesterday's date on the receipt. He showed the receipt to his staff, yelling at them for their error and pointing to the date he had just written. The mountain of paperwork vanished, and we left without paying any fines. Exhausted, we ditched JT and rode into the night towards Honduras, but he hitched a ride with a trucker and caught up to us shortly after we arrived. He continued snapping his fingers in Honduras, but remained ineffective. Trevor and I navigated innumerable queues with the jittery resignation of cattle in a slaughterhouse. Just as the physical and mental fatigue reached nearly unbearable levels, a lady prepared to stamp our passports, clearing us for entry into Honduras. Once I stamped these, she said, You have six hours to make it to Nicaragua. We looked at her in stunned silence. Apparently, the transit papers we had purchased when leaving Guatemala, the same permits that limited us to 24 hours in El Salvador, only allowed us six hours in Honduras and something like 16 hours in Nicaragua. But it's dark out, we pleaded. The lady handed us an unsympathetic stare. It's dangerous to ride at night, we added. No, it's not, she said. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Meanwhile, the Russians we'd met earlier rode past the office and threw a friendly wave as they continued into the night. That didn't strengthen our position, but we were allowed to finish the paperwork in the morning. The clock would start ticking when the stamp hit our passports. That left us with just one more person to yell at before bed, JT. He wanted his money. We had a deal. We would pay you when we made it into Honduras, I said. We're not in a Honduras yet. Still, for his time, I gave JT the price we originally agreed upon. He became furious and demanded more, arguing that he had given us an entire day. Yeah, an entire useless day, I said. I kept arguing with him while Trevor left to attend to the bikes. JT pointed to some of his friends and then threatened to kill us in our sleep. At least that's what I heard. Then again, it was late, my Spanish was poor, and I was tired. Regardless, Trevor and I made an effort to avoid detection as we looked for a hotel. We ended up in the most appalling room I have ever spent the night in, and this is coming from a man who considers aiming at stains in the toilet bowl while taking a pee to be light housework. I had to work up courage to use the toilet, and using the shower was simply out of the question.
I slept on the bed only because it offered a slightly better alternative than the concrete floor, which crawled with insect and reptilian life. Our evening meal, purchased from a nearby gas station, consisted of Pepsi, chocolate, Pringles, and wieners in a can. After the day we had endured, the meal seemed better than any Christmas dinner I've ever had at Grandma's house. December 5. Still covered in sweat and filth from the day before, and additional filth collected during the night, we headed back into the fray to complete our paperwork. We spent several hours standing in line and shouting at people before an official finally stamped our passports with dramatic flair. Finished, he declared. No more, we asked for clarification. No more, he said confidently. So we can go to Nicaragua now. Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, todo el mundo, he assured us. Our papers only allowed us six hours to cross Honduras and enter Nicaragua, but that was okay. After all the delays and frustration, we were eager to ride. We rode one happy kilometer before a guy on the road flagged us down. Not a guy in a uniform, mind you. Not even a guy with a gun, or a whistle, or a badge. Just a guy. A kid, actually. You need to get your papers stamped, said the kid. Where? I asked. The kid pointed. Three men lounged around a large desk at the side of the road, under the shade of a tree. You're kidding, I said. Not only did we need more stamps on our papers, but we needed photocopies of everything. As the concept of conveniently located copy machines has yet to occur to anyone in Central America, we hired the kid who flagged us down to get copies from the nearest machine. He hopped on his bicycle and raced back to the border, where we'd begun the day. What a ridiculous system. For the remainder of the day, I kept wondering if we would be stopped and told, okay, this is really, really, honestly, no kidding, absolutely the last thing you have to do before entering Honduras, I promise. I had a few moments, however, when my thoughts shifted from the frustrations of border crossings to the urgency of survival. While riding through a gently undulating landscape of fields along a two-way road, an oncoming truck edged into my lane to see if it was safe to pass. He must have seen me on my little motorcycle and decided that, yes, it was indeed safe for him to pass. At least he had the courtesy to flash his lights, giving me the requisite heads-up to slam on my brakes and swerve onto the tiny shoulder. I braced myself against a turbulent blast of a brace of air as the truck thundered by, mere centimeters away. I believe the trucker actually waved at me. Trevor waved back, though not with his entire hand. The only thing I remember about the short, six-hour ride through Honduras is seeing one perfect tree. It stood alone, rooted in a rolling carpet of green, a dark, spreading tree adorned with brilliant pink flowers. With the help of a previously untapped resource, the bribe, we entered Nicaragua with unprecedented ease. The transit permit that had caused so many problems in El Salvador and Honduras disappeared, along with our stress. We're in Nicaragua, I said as I climbed onto my bike. And we rode here, Trevor replied. Suddenly unencumbered by any concern regarding paperwork, borders, or fines, the road into Nicaragua felt like the yellow brick road, magical. We rode side by side, following freshly painted lines on smooth blacktop, standing on our foot pegs and leaning into the wind. Our fists pumped through the air in time to the telepathically audible beat of Lowrider, while the lazy sun cast a golden light on pillowy hills of green. 
In the spirit of quitting while ahead, we took refuge at a hotel before dusk. After settling into our room and hanging my mosquito net, I sauntered into the central courtyard of the hotel to check out its little zoo. The curator obviously hated animals. Imprisoned monkeys suffered in cramped, filthy enclosures, lacking mental or physical stimuli. The ones strong enough to maintain some will to live had worn grooves in the floors of their cages from repetitive pacing, but most of the beasts sat gently rocking in a corner or staring blankly through glassy eyes. The sight tarnished a magical day, but the worst was yet to come. That night, Trevor and I awoke to terrible primeval sounds. Tortured screams and slapping blows erupted from somewhere in the darkness. The insanity of the primate population must finally have reached an awful climax, and the beasts were tearing their keeper to shreds, I thought. Sadly, no. By horrible degrees of increasing consciousness, I realized that the sounds emanated from the couple in the next room. The paper-thin walls did nothing to muffle the cries of drunken passion unfolding centimeters from where we slept. I will spare you and me any further description. Suffice it to say the pair had an insatiable collective libido, and they were nothing if not persistent, and disgusting. I'm really not talking about normal physical intimacy. I'm really not. December 6. We settled into a hostel called the Bearded Monkey in Nicaragua's oldest colonial town, Granada. Founded in 1524, the town rests on the bank of Central America's largest lake, Lago de Nicaragua. Before the Panama Canal, engineers considered Lago de Nicaragua an option for linking the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Granada may have been old, but it had a youthful feel. Horse-drawn taxis shuttled tourists around a shady central park nestled at the foot of a large white cathedral. Buildings of white, pink, yellow, or blue ran together in typical Central American style. The city provided the perfect location to relax and recuperate. For two days, Trevor and I seldom ventured from our hammocks in the hostile courtyard, allowing sufficient time for some of our swollen bee stings to heal. Here I should mention that bees frequently stung Trevor and me while on the road. At this point in the journey, by my estimation, I had been stung a number of times only comprehensible by those in the scientific field of astronomy. If all the tiny bee stingers that had pierced my skin while riding had been collected and neatly laid end to end, they would have formed a line encircling the globe seven times. Seriously, how many times were you stung, you ask? Well, it's hard for me to nail down an exact number. Suffice it to say, many bees died defending some perceived attack of mine on their queen. One incident stands out in my mind. The bee actually got into my helmet and became momentarily trapped between my sunglasses and my eyeball! As it buzzed furiously, no doubt fixated on my pupil like an archer on a bullseye, I remained calm and said a quiet prayer. No, wait. I screamed like a little girl and nearly lost control of the bike in an attempt to rip the glasses from my face. It stands out in my mind mostly because the bee did not sting me. When you think about it, it's really a wonder we managed to stave off the effects of anaphylactic shock. Spending a few days in a hammock allowed the inflammation between me and Trevor to dissipate a little too. We had kept up a unified front during the past several days, but all the stress and uncertainty of so many borders in so little time had taken its toll. We needed a little time to ourselves. 
Through the trees in the courtyard, I could see Trevor sipping a Coke and writing in his journal. Occasionally, we'd catch each other's eye from across the room, nod, lift our glasses, and drink together, but we communicated little more than that during most of the day. December 8. After leaving Granada, Trevor and I took a ferry to an island comprised of two majestic volcanoes and an isthmus located on Lago de Nicaragua. Approximately 100 kilometers of dirt road ring the island of Amitepi in a misshapen figure eight. It takes half a day to cross the island in extreme discomfort using the irregular bus service, but Trevor and I circumnavigated it in less than six hours. Since our bikes allowed access to the remotest parts of the island that buses cannot reach, we may actually have made first contact with some of the indigenous people, a theory supported by the stares we got as we bounced past them, waving and smiling like idiots. We seldom shifted out of first or second gear, but we moved relatively fast. The spectacular scenery, as viewed through our visors, vibrated like a show on an old TV set with a faulty vertical hold. No matter. With all its cavernous potholes, deep gashes, and rocky protrusions, the road demanded our full attention. A spreading tree beside an overgrown cemetery with whitewashed headstones offered respite for us and a troop of howler monkeys along a remote stretch of road. When we removed our helmets, the monkeys screamed at us and then retreated high into the canopy of our shady tree. As we watched them, a local family watched us. A muscular, dark-haired young man with a machete and a hint of suspicion in his eyes approached quietly from behind them. Before long, he invited us to follow him to his nearby shack where his family worked, packaging dry coffee beans in burlap sacks. With his permission, I snapped a few pictures of the man and his family. Meanwhile, Trevor ran around like a war photographer under fire, squatting here, dive-rolling there, in an attempt to capture the perfect image. We thanked the family for their time and returned to our machines. I had just strapped up my helmet when I noticed the man approaching us with a timid smile and a bunch of bananas. His smile broadened as he held out the bananas, but he remained silent. Trevor and I hesitated. The thought of accepting a gift from this man, a gift given out of poverty, made me squirm. After all, I have little money by Canadian standards, but on a global scale, I'm obscenely rich. And what if the roles were reversed? What if I found a grubby traveler parked outside of my house in Canada? Would I invite him inside? Would I feed him or offer a gift? A little twang of guilt reverberated in my heart when we took the bananas, but it served no purpose. The man had given to us what he could, and his warm smile reassured me that he was happy to do it. We ate the bananas together right there on the road before thanking him once more and finally bouncing away. A decrepit brick tienda with a corrugated tin roof and earthen floor provided shade for our next rest stop. We sat at a plastic table beneath the only decoration in the dark shack, an advertisement featuring a scantily clad Britney Spears. I have to go with Tom Robbins on this one. The more advertising I see, the less I want to buy. The old one-eyed proprietor suppressed a look of shock when he saw us and hurried off to fetch warm sodas smacking his young son on the back of the head as he left for staring at the strange white men. December 11. Most people have to endure a two-hour hike to reach a picturesque waterfall on the small volcano, but walking is for suckers. 
After paying an entrance fee and riding through park gates, we motored through tall grass along a two-track path that veered to avoid pine trees and rock outcroppings as it climbed. Looking back, we could see the dark water of Lago de Nicaragua stretching to the horizon. The trail rose sharply and twisted up increasingly difficult terrain, forcing us to stand on our foot pegs and lean heavily uphill. We rolled hard on the throttle in first gear, feathering the clutch to find a balance between momentum on the steep slope and control in the tight corners. The ride, at once exhausting and exhilarating, brought us to a rudimentary shelter on a sunlit, grassy bench. We parked the bikes and walked into a deep gorge filled with birdsong and broad-leaved plants. A simple path, steep in spots and muddy, picked its way through the gorge over exposed roots along a peaceful stream. Where the clear water ran shallow and broad over smooth rock, we could skip across it on our toes in one or two quick strides. Where it flowed swift and narrow through a well-worn groove, we'd clear it in one little jump. After about half an hour of hiking, we pushed through a curtain of waxy leaves into the cool air of a mossy amphitheater that contained the falls. Nestled at the back of a tight, semicircular headwall, the water cascaded hundreds of feet down nearly vertical rock into a shallow pool lined with small round stones. No thundering torrent, these falls whispered politely so as not to interrupt the performance of an unseen avian symphony. Trevor's Jump After about half an hour of hiking, we pushed through a curtain of waxy leaves filled with birdsong and broad-leaved plants. A simple path, steep in spots and muddy, picked its way through the gorge over exposed roots along a peaceful stream. Where the clear water ran shallow and broad over smooth rock, we could skip across it on our toes in one or two quick strides. Where it flowed swift and narrow through a well-worn groove, we'd clear it in one little jump. After about half an hour of hiking, we pushed through a curtain of waxy leaves into the cool air of a mossy amphitheater that contained the falls. Nestled at the back of a tight, semicircular headwall, the water cascaded hundreds of feet down nearly vertical rock into a shallow pool lined with small round stones. No thundering torrent, these falls whispered politely so as not to interrupt the performance of an unseen avian symphony. Trevor splashed around in the pool while I brooded over a growing problem, my intolerance towards Trevor. I'd lashed out at him in anger when we parked our motorbikes at the trailhead for the falls. In spite of the awkward maneuvering required, Trevor insisted we padlock our bikes together with a thick cable we carry for that purpose. Given our remote location and the fact that we could easily lock the steering on our bikes, it seemed a complete waste of time and I exploded like a two-year-old who's just had a toy snatched away. My anger surprised us both and I sat at the falls trying to understand it. Basically, it came down to efficiency. Whether intentionally or not, Trevor had been manipulating me and shaping our agenda simply by being slow. What had started out as my motorbike trip quickly became a joint venture that had quietly transformed into Trevor's itinerary. His pace dictated how far we rode each day, how long it took to find a hotel, how much time we had to explore our surroundings, and, inevitably, how far south we could ride. Once more, I saw the ugly side of myself. I apologized to Trevor when he finished splashing around, and I meant it, but the resentment remained. December 12. We arrived in Moyogalpa on the island's coast, just in time to catch a ferry to the mainland. 
Large trucks stuffed with green bananas claimed most of the ferry's open deck. I quickly lashed my machine to a railing and clambered up the side of the ship to take pictures while Trevor battled ferry employees over how to stow his bike. Once we got off the ferry, a short ride brought us to San Juan del Sur, a small town on the Pacific Ocean near the border with Costa Rica, where we spent two days waiting for heavy rain to clear. I logged a lot of hammock time beneath the shelter of a clay tile roof, reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and watching large turtles padding silently across the courtyard. Trevor and I finally abandoned all hope of reaching South America. We made the decision based on time and money, but we had an unspoken understanding that our partnership could not endure the journey. We planned to explore the option of selling our bikes in Costa Rica and flying home. Failing that, we would have to drive the stupid things all the way back. But before getting rid of the bikes, we hoped to drive through Panama to the end of the road, the Darien Gap. There we'd shout, Colombia sucks! and drive away as fast as we could, giggling like schoolgirls. If all went to plan, the Colombians would never find us, and we could be back in Canada before you could say kidnapping. December 15. Before leaving Canada, I carefully checked the travel advisories for every country between Mexico and Panama, and they all said the same thing. I'm paraphrasing here. Everybody stay home. If you are stupid enough to travel in Central America, you will be kidnapped, sodomized, and killed, but not necessarily in that order. Certainly don't drive, you idiot. But if you must drive, keep your windows rolled up and doors locked at all times. That last bit made me consider fitting my helmet visor with a padlock. But so far, I had mostly good impressions of Central American people. They appeared friendly and honest, not counting the jerks that shortchanged me at the gas station in Mexico. They made travel in Central America a wholly pleasant experience, especially when compared to travel in, say, Egypt. I visited the Middle East with a friend two months after terrorists destroyed the World Trade Center. Apparently, with my long blonde hair and blue eyes, I represented a threat to Egyptian homeland security. The mere sight of me, obviously a Western Christian, prompted several men in Cairo to shake angry fists at us and shout, Osama bin Laden! One day, Cordell and I witnessed a crowd beat a middle-aged woman into a bloody stupor. Another day, we saw a knife fight between three construction workers. From that last scene, I learned one important thing. Never bring a shovel to a knife fight. In spite of that, we seldom felt physically threatened. However, virtually every shopkeeper, hotel manager, and taxi driver we met in Egypt and then in Jordan swindled, cheated, or deceived us in some way. At first we presented easy targets, but we quickly became streetwise and belligerent. Unfortunately, Egyptians are highly adaptable. Watching them steal from us both infuriated and entertained us simultaneously. At one point, Cordell and I passed a man selling mini donuts from a little vending cart on the bank of the Nile River in Aswan. Now, in several early drafts of this story, I took an educated guess at the vendor's name, a name shared by more than half of all the Egyptian males we met during our travels. However, as the name bears religious connotations, my editor cautioned that such a reference might have an inflammatory effect upon certain individuals. In spite of my assurances that no one would ever actually listen to this audiobook, she insisted I remove the name just to be on the safe side. Of course she's right. And so, to fully extinguish the flame of controversy, I must refer to the vendor as Dr. Mamory Rudiger von Strossenhammer III, Jr., 
I wouldn't want to be responsible for the sacking of any Canadian embassies. Anyway, Cordell and I needed donuts. Having learned a thing or two about the exorbitant prices Egyptians reserve for tourists, we first tried to see what price the locals paid. Mamory uncovered our plan rather quickly. Neither Cordell nor I possessed subtlety as a strong mark of character. He whispered something to his local patrons, who then cast sideway glances at us, concealing their money with their coats. Mamory took their money, made change under his little counter, and, hiding it with his apron, gave it back to the customer. Mind you, these people worked as a team of swindlers, with Mamory as their captain, even though they had no vested interest in so doing. Undaunted, Cordell and I approached the cart. Mamory pushed a bag of donuts at us, and then wiped his hands on his greasy apron before fingering his thick mustache. In Egypt, if a merchant successfully places a product in your hands, he expects you to complete the transaction regardless of price. That tack didn't fly with us. From experience, we knew that the stated price would be ludicrous. Rather than bartering the price down, which could take as long as half an hour, Cordell often estimated the worth of a product, placed the money on the table, and simply walked away. If the shopkeeper protested loudly and followed us to the door of his shop demanding more money, we'd paid more than we should have. If he protested by physically grabbing us and threatening to involve police, we'd paid the fair local's price. If he followed us into the street, grabbed us, and began calling for help, we needed to seriously reconsider our offer, but that only happened once. Unfortunately, we didn't have exact change for the donuts. Cordell and I estimated the worth of a bag and handed Mamry some money, but he returned less than half the change we wanted. More, I insisted. Mamry nodded in understanding and, feigning reluctance, placed two more donuts in the bag. Okay, that was funny. More money, Cordell added in a confrontational tone, the only tone merchants understand. The discussion became heated and Mamry finally obliged to give us more change. Originally, he had wanted five dollars. We paid seventy-five cents. Later, we learned that locals pay twenty cents. Such is daily life for a tourist in Egypt. But, like I said, Central America had so far impressed us with the warmth of her people and we'd never felt physically threatened. Until we entered Costa Rica, the safest of all Latin American countries, according to the Lonely Planet. To celebrate, we'd parked on a dirt pullout in the shade of a ceiba tree to enjoy a bimbo. It's not what you think. A bimbo is just a Twinkie without the filling. I was just about to say, and we rode here, when two police officers in a sputtering white truck approached us. Is everything all right? The driver asked. We nodded. You shouldn't stay here, he added, almost conversationally. It's very dangerous. What? Why? I asked as he casually started driving away. Bandits! exclaimed the enthusiastic passenger. Very dangerous, he added, and playfully riddled me with bullets from an imaginary gun. They come out of the jungle from Nicaragua. He pointed to the dense, bandit-concealing greenery that pressed against our bikes. Thanks, I yelled with a mouthful of bimbo as I strapped up my helmet and started the engine. Trevor, usually eager to eat and hesitant to ride, was several steps ahead of me, but even he could not match the haste of our friendly police who had already fled the scene in a cloud of dust. That was our first taste of Costa Rica. Dire warnings from friendly police. The next day, we met some unfriendly police. First, I should provide a little background. In Central America, all signs displaying posted speed limits are purely decorative. 
If you ride 100 kilometers per hour in a 60 zone on an open highway, vehicles may slam into you from behind. Conversely, if you try riding the speed limit of 70 kilometers per hour on a precipitous mountain road, the mountain will shake you from its flanks like water from a wet dog. So, you see, we had grown accustomed to ignoring speed limits by the time we reached Costa Rica. Inevitably, some cops clocked Trevor going a little fast and pulled him over. I swear I saw dollar signs in their eyes when I pulled in behind him. They made various threats in choppy English, accompanied by throat-slicing motions to illustrate their point. You see? asked the young cop, who bore a striking resemblance to Eric Estrada from Chips. He dragged his forefinger slowly across his throat. Six months, no license, no drive. The old cop said nothing, but frowned and shook his head as if to say, This is the part of the job I hate. The cops both started writing tickets very, very slowly. They looked up to see if we understood the gravity of the situation. They continued writing. Or, the young cop said at last, pointing with his pen as if he'd just had an idea, we could give you a warning. Yeah, and how much does that cost? I asked. Trevor didn't wait for the reply. That sounds good, he said. We'll take the warning then. I carried two wallets for this very reason. One had all my money, identification, and credit cards. The other had a few dollars and fake ID. I opened the wallet containing a few dollars. That's all we have, I lied. We haven't been to the bank in Costa Rica yet. Though disappointed, the police accepted our meager offering and let us go. Needless to say, for the rest of the ride to San Jose, we obeyed all posted speed limits. We parked outside a quaint two-story hostel in San Jose and went inside to get a room. When the kid at the front desk learned that we had left our bikes unattended, his jaw dropped and he fled the building as if it were on fire. We found him nervously pacing the sidewalk by our machines, imploring us to guard them against bandits. Perhaps certain travel advisories preach doom and gloom for good reason. December 18. The high road from San Jose winds through a cloud forest. Now, in my mind, the term cloud forest conjures up images of cute, multicolored bears dancing on pillowy clouds and tending gardens of magical trees. The sobering reality? A forest perpetually enveloped in thick, cold fog and probably devoid of dancing bears. I used the back of my hand to clear droplets of water from my visor, but still had trouble keeping Trevor's shadowy figure in sight through the mist. Soon my leather gloves were soaked and my fingers tingled with cold. As a remedy, I reached back to grasp my muffler. The muffler was located on the right side of the machine, so I had to really twist my body around to reach it with my left hand, and when grabbing it with my right, I had to cross over and hold the throttle with my left. No easy feat, but well worth the effort. It took only a minute for the hot metal of my exhaust pipe to completely dry out my gloves and warm my fingers. Unfortunately, the trick did little to warm my body. When the shivering became uncontrollable, we stopped for a break at a lonely restaurant. A faded sign on the side of the building read, Elevation, 3,100 meters, 10,170 feet. We sipped coffee by large picture windows overlooking the jungle canopy while dozens of shiny green and blue hummingbirds, ranging in size from peanuts to grapefruit, hovered at feeders on the other side of the glass. I thought about my grandma. She used to stand quite still by the hummingbird feeder in her backyard, holding out her finger like a perch. 
Occasionally, a bird would alight on her hand to access the feeder. She said it felt like an angel's kiss. I saw her for the last time one month before she succumbed to liver cancer, lying on a couch and draped in a woolen blanket. If she'd had the energy to turn her head, she could have watched hummingbirds outside her living room window, but she could hardly move. Still, even in her weakest moment, her face conveyed a peace that she quickly credited to faith in God. There, at death's door, gaunt, jaundiced, and frail, she was beautiful and unafraid. While you may certainly debate the existence of God or whether faith in Jesus has merit, you cannot question the peace such faith gave my grandma. That, at least, was real. It had been a long time since my last visit, and when I entered the room, I exclaimed, Grandma, you look fantastic. Have you lost weight? She managed a feeble laugh and then began to cough. She might have said the same thing if I were the one dying. Her humor had always been a bit edgy. We had that in common, but I could identify with her for several other reasons. She loved travel, and having married late in life, she understood loneliness too. She would have approved of this bike trip. After a few short days, I had to return to work in another province, knowing that the next time I saw my grandma, she would be in a casket. I knelt beside the couch and leaned towards her, giving her a long, gentle hug. Better make it good, she whispered. This has to last a long time. I told Trevor about my grandma, and he listened quietly. When I finished, we just sat there, silently watching the birds dart through the mist from one feeder to the next. To me, they represented the memory of a woman I admired for all of her love, courage, wisdom, and strength. Suddenly, they seemed like the most beautiful creatures in the world. I put my hand against the cold glass, and a bird, no bigger than my thumb, paused for a moment just a few centimeters from my fingers, instantly replacing the cold in my body with a warm glow. Trevor and I finished our coffee and left the restaurant. We prepared for another freezing ride, but the sun cracked the clouds as we descended, forcing us to stop and shed several layers of utter clothing. Leaving the Pan American Highway, we climbed towards San Vito along a narrow road that meandered in spots like Christmas ribbon candy. The road enjoyed a harmonious relationship with the landscape, as if it had merely intended to pass through but lay down for a rest on a carpet of thick grass and got lulled to sleep by whispering trees that stooped to offer it shade. Gentle sunlight painted a canvas of verdant hills with millions of soft shadows, subtly accentuating every curve and dimple of the rolling terrain. Looking down, the Pacific Ocean sparkled like diamond dust, making the decision to stop for photos a no-brainer. I took a few shots of Trevor riding, and then we carried on our way. Just when I thought the scenery had reached the earthly limitations of beauty, a single tree reminded me that beauty is boundless. It appeared in brilliant yellow bloom amidst a setting of deep, rolling green. Flowers shone from this tree where leaves should have been. We rode on and saw other bright yellow trees, but none was more striking than the very first. After finding a hotel, we did some maintenance on our bikes. I adjusted the play in my throttle while Trevor took apart his entire rear brake assembly. With parts of his bike strewn about the sidewalk, it looked like he had ridden over a landmine. I wanted to capture the carnage on film, but I couldn't find my camera. I had used it only a couple of hours ago when I'd taken that photo of Trevor on the road. Had I been so pleased with myself for collecting the perfect image that I had winged the camera into the ditch in euphoric hysteria?
I had to find out. Trevor hurried to reassemble his bike, but I didn't have time to wait. Breaking our only rule, I rode alone into approaching darkness. The faint glow of my headlight reflecting off the pavement grew more and more pronounced as I raced to find the scene of our little photo shoot. A few traces of daylight remained when I reached the place, just enough to spot my camera lying beside the road. Apparently I had taken the shot, turned the camera off, placed it on the ground, and driven away. Who does that? Then again, I have a bit of a reputation when it comes to cameras. While volunteering at a wilderness camp one summer, the director asked me to lead a photography workshop for the sole reason that I owned an expensive camera. While I hurriedly packed my gear the night before the first day of the course, my precious camera fell off the top bunk and hit the bedroom floor with a disturbing thud. By all outward appearances, it seemed all right, but when I tried to take a few test pictures, the shutter refused to click open, and the LED blinked as if it had a concussion. I panicked. In desperation, I phoned my dad, the only person I knew who had any technical knowledge of photographic equipment. Of course, he couldn't help me over the phone, but he offered to lend me his camera for the week. Within minutes of hanging up, he left his house in Saskatchewan and drove all night to meet me for breakfast. I'll take your camera back to Regina for repair, he offered. Can I see it? He sat down and looked it over. See, the shutter won't click, I said. Hmm, he muttered, puzzling over the problem. And the LED is flashing. He nodded. He could see that. Did you check the batteries, he asked. Of course I checked the batteries. Did he think I was stupid? Why don't we put some film in it and see what happens, he said. Film? Yeah, there's no film in here. Within eight hours and 30 seconds, my dad diagnosed the problem with my expensive camera. It had no film. Thank you for joining me and Jeremy here on the Motorcycle Men Podcast. This has been Chapters with Jeremy Craker and Chapter 6 of Motorcycle Therapy. Links to Jeremy's books will be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Men website. All right, and don't forget to go over to the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel and watch some of the many videos we have there, including the Ted Shed and Ride with Ted videos. And from the rest of the Motorcycle Men team, thanks for listening. And remember, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Ride safely, kids. <laughs> <laughs>